0: Hello and welcome to today's episode of Fixing Health I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kork, also host of the Populating Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and uncaring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients, all profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, RobertPerlMD.com. This season focuses on the complex issue of end of life. Our guest today is Rabbi Melanie Aaron. She did her rabbinic training at the Hebrew Union College. She served as the senior rabbi at Congregation Sheer Hadash from 1990 to 2021, when she became rabbi emerita. She served as the chair of the Union for Reform Judaism's Committee on Adult Jewish Learning.
1: Good morning, Rabbi Aaron. It's a privilege to have you on our Fixing Healthcare podcast. Thank you. As you know, this is season nine, and it focuses on end-of-life issues. I invited you as a Jewish scholar and an expert in reform Judaism to offer your thoughts on this complex and ethically uncertain area of medicine. Where you feel comfortable, please express other views, whether from conservative Orthodox Judaism or other religions. I think that will be useful to our listening audience. And I thought that this morning we might take what some would call a Talmudic approach, beginning with what seems to be clear answers and then dissecting them apart as a means to get to the heart of these challenging ethical and moral concerns. I know as a rabbi, you often provide spiritual support to people at the end of their lives. And I also know that you sat on multiple hospital ethics committees. So let me begin by asking, does reform Judaism have a point of view on doctors helping people with intolerable pain and a strong desire to end their sufferings, to end their lives? So it's very
2: interesting that you ask the question in this way. Because for many, many years, the reform movement, along with conservative and orthodox scholars, opposed any kind of intervention that would speed the end of life. This is because of the great value that Judaism places on life, all life, and even questionable life. Um, Life where you don't know if somebody is still alive, one can violate the Sabbath to try to save their lives, even if somebody is seems likely to die soon. What's really interesting, though, is that last year, the reform movement offered a new responsa, a new response to a question asked that kind of loosens that stance in some ways. And I think there are a couple of different things that contributed to that. Um, One is that this is no longer just theoretical, that there are laws in uh, more than several states in Canada, which is part of our catchment as the Central Conference of American Rabbis, and in Europe, that do allow for assisted suicide, um, position involvement and in end of life, whatever you wanna call it, in certain circumstances. So the reform movement has said, when we have new knowledge, sometimes we change our position. And two examples of that, one has to do with those who are deaf, who were considered, Um, in earlier generations, not competent. But once people realized that one could communicate with the deaf, that status was changed in Jewish law, even among the Orthodox. Um, Similarly, there was a lot of hesitation around transplant, but the Orthodox rabbinate, the chief rabbi of Israel has endorsed um, transplants now. And that has really changed Israeli society's attitude. So here too, we begin to see a change in attitude, um, but it's tentative and it's guarded in certain ways.
1: As you point out, the legal restrictions vary dramatically by geography, but within the religious response or within the religious thinking, what would be the types of criteria How strict are they? How broad are they? Are they well-defined for when assisting a person in dying might be uh, allowed? They are well-defined,
2: and they draw on a tradition of interpreting certain stories that are told in the Talmud, which was a a very important code that was part of the development of Jewish law, um, so that they're talking about instances where a person is terminally ill. They're talking about instances where a person can give consent. Um, And they're also talking about instances where all of the societal supports that would prevent somebody being forced into this decision are present. So um, in the response, they talk about the difference between Canada and the United States. And we know that even in Canada, things are not perfect in this regard but because life is valued in an ultimate kind of way, they don't want a person's life used as a means. Um, They don't want people being forced into this decision because of fear of medical debt, because they're getting inadequate care, um, because they feel an obligation to their family to make life easier for their family. They want all of those supports to be in place so a person can make a true decision that ending their life at this point is what they both desire and in their interest. It comes in part from a number of of different places. One is when people were sentenced to death in a capital crime, there was still an effort to provide them with comfort so they could have what the rabbis called a mitai yafa, a nice death, meaning a painless death or a death without, overly much anxiety. Um, Rashi, a famous commentator, says that they should die quickly and we need to understand that in the medieval period it was sort of assumed that someone would die if they were terminally ill in three days, maybe five days. Maimonides, a physician and rabbi, thought the outside limit was 20 days but now we have very different circumstances where people can be in a dying situation for a much longer period of time.
1: To that end, and you raise some really fascinating insights about this end of life and the suffering that's there. When someone is in the ICU and they clearly will never regain a semblance of what we think of as function, They'll be bedridden, fed through a tube, unable to control their bladder, bowels, unable to speak. We often keep them intubated for long periods of time, stick needles into them constantly, disrupt their sleep so they become delirious. Is this a form of treatment or is it a type of torture that might not have been tolerated from an ethical perspective, I'm speaking now, by some of the commentators of the past.
2: So Judaism draws a distinction between those things that hasten death and those things that prevent the natural process of death. And I think some of the interventions that you're speaking about have been viewed by some rabbis at least as interventions that don't meet the criteria of not intervening to prevent death. Um, In the Talmud, these are very simple things. If somebody is kept alive by the noise of a wood chopper outside their window because it allows them to focus, you stop the wood chopper. If someone is being kept alive in great pain because the rabbis are praying for them not to die, there's a famous story of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, a great rabbi who had terrible pain, And his maidservant recognized better than the rabbis that he was in a process of dying and should be allowed to complete that process. So she picks up a vessel. She smashes it on the ground. The loud noise interrupts the rabbis from praying. Rabbi Yehuda dies, and she is praised um, for that action. So we do have a tradition of not forcing people to um, have futile treatment. Um, The way it's expressed is there's treatment that may um, remedy some problem, but if it doesn't cure the underlying disease process that is leading to their death, they are not required to take that treatment. Um, And so that allows a certain amount of control. I know you and I have both spoken about family circumstances where we have seen people that we love have very extended periods where they're in this sort of limbo um, and possibly not what they would have chosen, but once somebody has passed the point of choosing, it becomes very difficult to act. So Judaism and the reform movement encourages people to speak with their families, to um, make the uh, appropriate legal um actions that will allow someone else to make that decision for them if they become uh, mentally incompetent or unable to speak their own minds.
1: You mentioned before the change in the science for most of the 5000 years of history or the more recent time period up to maybe 100 years ago. There was very little that we could do to keep people alive at the end of life, and that, as you noted, has changed dramatically. That now raises another question, which is, how do we define life? And since, as you said at the start of this discussion, that the ability to save a life has been a core value of Judaism across history, I would think there has to be some type of new definition how we think of being alive, whether that's externally imposed or internally derived from the individual. Do you have thoughts about how we redefine life?
2: Well, there's sort of two aspects to this. One is a very clinical definition of death. Um, You know, is it respiration? Um, is it heartbeat? Is it respiration and heart? Is it the brain? Is it the brain stem? And there's quite a bit of literature on this topic. And um, most rabbis, even Orthodox rabbis, have come to accept the medical definition of brain death. The danger in deciding that someone's quality of life is not sufficient to Um, make it worth living is the implications of that for some of the people who live with disabilities, and I know there's a great deal of concern in the disabled community that their lives will be defined somehow as not worth living, and that is not um, consistent with the Jewish attitude that any moment of life is of great value. It's been interesting to me that um, when people have studied those who have chosen to um, be involved in this assisted dying, it's often not the fear of pain itself, which is what is often discussed, um, but other kinds of fear, uh, loss of autonomy, loss of dignity. Um, and this loss of control. And it's been interesting to me that many people, and I even had this experience with a family in our congregation, once they went through the legal processes that would enable them to take control of the dying process, they didn't need to actually do it. It was just the knowledge that they would have that capacity that somehow removed a certain kind of anxiety and allowed them to appreciate what hospice, what palliative care was able to do with them, appreciate the time they had with their family, without that worry of loss of control hanging over their heads. Um, and, and that's a very interesting kind of argument um, for this physician assistance um, in ending a, personal sli- in a person's life.
1: The last guest on our show was Atul Gwande, who talked about experience with his father and it was exactly what you described once he felt that he had a level of control that made everything easier that the feared not just the fear of the pain and the disability but the fear of losing that control was so powerful and atul talks about the fact that when people are given that control even though they often will decide they do not want let's say chemotherapy for an incurable cancer. They actually live longer, not shorter. I know you have a lot of experience with patients in hospice and other forms of palliative care. What has been your experience overall? And what do you think listeners need to know about that type of -of end-of-life care? So my experience
2: with hospice is that it's one of the few aspects of the medical system that overall works pretty well and that it's unfortunate that people are very afraid of hospice. I think sometimes doctors are fearful of raising the issue with their patients because it is a way of talking about end of life but that once people get into hospice, especially the better run hospices, they really feel very supported, not only the patient, but also the patient's family, and that this can be very important. Now, we have had um, issues sometimes of um, people with Medicaid, not getting the kind of hospice care that they need, um, people who are alone, maybe someone who's lost a spouse and doesn't have children and doesn't have other forms of support. Um, In-home hospice may not be enough support for them at the end of life, but overall I have found hospice much appreciated by families and really people are sorry that they didn't start the process earlier. It doesn't mean you're gonna die right away. Um, I had a wonderful experience with a woman in the congregation who because hospice led to her Um, being hydrated and having food and regularity in her life, was able to resume playing bridge with her bridge club um, during the period that she was also under hospice care. So it can really make a big difference. I do want to return to something you said about that issue of control. Um, Rabbi Lori Zoloff, who's actually an academic ethicist, talks about this irony That death is something that intrinsically we can't control, we don't control, we don't understand what exists on the other side of death, and yet we want to control it so badly. Um, And she sees some of the efforts we have with this involvement of physicians, a way of bringing uh, rationality, bringing some kind of control, making it feel more sanctioned. Um, and in that sense, offering us some measure of comfort, even if that's a little bit of um, inauthentic comfort, because the reality that dying is something out of our control remains. Um, we might be able to bring death closer, but we often come to a time when we cannot put off death for a longer period of time. She also notes something really interesting that I hadn't thought about that we tend to think about using barbiturates for this end of life treatment because it's something that physicians are familiar with, that it's something that we use to remove pain. And so we can sort of do that Catholic double um, purpose kind of thing. Um, But there are other things that would lead to death, perhaps more reliably like cyanide. And we don't do that because that would feel Perhaps too much to us like killing. So that was interesting for me to think about in terms of what some of the issues might be as some of the laws in some states or in some countries are extended. You know, ethicists have talked about the slippery slope, and rabbis mentioned that in responsa. And we haven't seen state killing, you know, the sort of dystopian um, issues that were raised. Um, the death panels that were threatened. Um, But I think there are real issues with giving people the kind of support they need, so they're not forced into a decision that may not truly be a free decision. And my time in Brooklyn with a community that was not as affluent as some Jewish communities, where people ended up in public hospitals, Coney Island Hospital, which I believe has been closed since, um, that were not so wonderful, might be nudged in a direction, and that nudging would be viewed as very inappropriate by the point of view of Jewish law.
1: You're raising a very important issue, and it relates back again to the difference between the United States and Canada. What if the pain people have that they can't tolerate is psychological, not physical in the sense of a cancer? You know, we talk about treating mental and physical health equivalently, we have laws about that in the United States, let's say relative to to profound depression and people want to end the pain they're experiencing every day, they try treatments. How do we assess the appropriateness, again, from an ethical and a moral perspective, not a legal one, of helping them to terminate their life if that is what they've decided is the best for
2: themselves? That's a very current question. I'm sure uh, many of those listening read the article in the New York Times about someone who had a, a long standing issue with anorexia. Um, and sometimes, when individuals have committed suicide, one source of comfort for the family is to understand that mental illness, like physical illness, comes with a certain morbidity. Some number of people will die given the state of treatment at this time, just like some number of cancer patients will not respond well to the treatments that we have, so too some number of people who suffer mental illness will not respond to the treatments such as we have them now. I think from an ethical point of view though, this is much more difficult and it was not included in the recent reform responsa, because there's that whole question of competence in making a decision. How much of the decision is clouded by the illness that is not well treated? And to what extent can you call it a a free and informed decision? Um, And I think that it's one of the tragedies of the limitations both of our knowledge in mental health and also in the state of the mental health care system in the united states which remains so inadequate that for many people that seems like the only way forward Um, it was a very touching article in the new york times i think we can respond to it emotionally but i think there's also a concern about where that would go Um, in terms of recognizing depression. Um, There's also articles of people choosing to go to other countries because there are other countries that accept that as a status or people um, shopping around for doctors so that they can get somebody to sign for them, even if the, the real issue for them is mental illness and not a physical illness or a terminal illness. So I respond to that emotionally, but I'm very hesitant to see us move forward until we have a much better system in place to support people, to support their families.
1: Let me move to another topic, which is Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. I, being of sound mind, now say that once I can't recognize my family, should I develop Alzheimer's? I don't want to live. I put it into a legal document. I get agreement from my family members. Do you see any way that ethically that at the moment that this occurs that my wishes could be granted?
2: So what's tricky about that is that people's minds change over time. Um, The story in the Talmud that the responsa deals with has to do with changing their mind in the other direction. A certain Rabbi Hanina who is being burnt alive by the Romans. At first he says, no, nothing should be done to hasten my death. But when he's in enough pain, he does agree to allow uh, the person who is the Roman officer to cause him to die more quickly. And so we see change over time. Um, the question is in Alzheimer how would you interpret change over time? And I wanna refer people to a wonderful book that I read called Still Alice. And it's about a woman who realizes that she is suffering from Alzheimer's while she's still lucid, she saves medicine, she has a suicide plan. She has a set of five questions and directions to herself that if she can't answer those five questions, she should go on her computer, open the file that has the instructions for her to take her own life. But once the Alzheimer's um, becomes more severe, she no longer has the ability to follow through on her own uh, plans, nor does she mention or talk about the option of suicide. So you're left to wonder, is that because she is satisfied with her life as it is or is it because she no longer has the ability to think about alternatives to continuing to live so i do encourage people to talk about this with their families so that if somebody becomes no longer capable of making their own decisions their family has very clear advice as to what they want but it is a little bit tricky because people will sometimes say I don't want to live if I lose control of my limbs, but then for some reason, they become paralyzed and they decide they do want to live. Um, So it is tricky because people change their minds. On the other hand, um, extreme measures for somebody who has instructed their family that as their Alzheimer's, Um, increases, they do not, progresses, they do not want to remain alive, would seem very much out of bounds. And um, already a very orthodox rabbi in the last century, Moshe Feinstein, says you can't coerce someone to accept treatment. Um, You can't force someone to accept treatment, particularly if that treatment is not going to resolve their medical problems.
1: As a very experienced rabbi, What advice do you have for families trying to make decisions about a loved one in the ICU with terminal disease who are considering ending life support and allowing the loved one to die? What advice do you have to make that process, which is very painful, at least a little bit less difficult?
2: It's a very difficult process. And sometimes different members of the family are going through this experience in different ways and may not see things the same way. Um, Having a facilitator help with those conversations, whether that's the chaplain at the hospital, whether that's a clergy person the family has had a relationship with, some physicians are willing to take that road, take that role, or nurse practitioners, but to help the family clarify, first of all, what is the situation of their family member? Many people see, you know, ICUs on television and people go home afterwards and they don't realize how unlikely that is for someone who is in the ICU in the situation that you described. Um, It helps to talk about the person um, when they were alive and had capacity and what they expressed that they would like. And then for the family, sometimes to take a little bit of time to consider um, their own feelings and to come to some kind of agreement so that they are all together in this. Um, that helps avoid later problems. It's also the time to talk about the possibility of an organ um, being used in a transplant and people have found great meaning in that. Even over these last couple of months of the very difficult situation in Israel with the young people who are dying, being able to offer an organ for transplant has been meaningful to families who are suffering a loss. So it's the time to talk about it if they haven't talked about it before, if they haven't gotten direction, um, to have a facilitated conversation to understand really what the prognosis is likely to be so that they can make an
1: informed decision. As a rabbi, what did you learn about end-of-life issues through your experience that you wish you had known at the start of your rabbinate? Well,
2: one thing um, that would have been helpful is the, um, the difficulty in people coming back from very serious medical issues. And I think understanding that a little bit better early on um, might've been helpful. Um, Helping people sort out the values of the family versus the values of other people involved in the treatment. We had a horrible situation with a child with meningitis who probably very quickly, it was clear, was not gonna have any continuation of life. And yet, because of certain interference was kept on life support for a very long period of time. And at that point, I didn't have the understanding to um, bring people together and to face what was really happening. I think also over the years, I've become more and more convinced that it's so important to have programs while people are still well, while people are um, still able to make decisions to talk about the ways that they can inform their family of what they want and that this is a mercy to their family. People say, oh, especially sometimes when people are ill, they say, my family doesn't really want to hear about dying, but they do want to hear about what you want and they want to be clear that they can follow your instructions, that they can do what you would have wanted them to do um, so that as difficult as it is, Often when somebody is is really ill to talk about end of life, it is really a mercy
1: to the family
2: to be able to talk about it.
1: You mentioned the difficulty about people coming back from serious illness. What did you mean about that?
2: Um, once there is really no brain activity, that person is not going to come out of that coma. Um, and I think we, we don't necessarily always have a realistic picture of that and sometimes you know there are stories about this or that um, and it, it's very human to hope that your situation is going to be different than everybody else's and something really um, out, outstanding is going to happen in this situation. But I think the, the medical knowledge we have now indicates that that isn't going to happen and that we need to face the reality um, when we have a loved one in that situation.
1: What do you believe that religion can teach clinicians about how to provide more compassionate medical care at the end of life?
2: Well, that's a, a great question. So what do I wish that physicians knew? I think it's helpful for physicians as they get to know their patients, especially patients with serious illness, to get a sense of what the patient believes and what the patient thinks should happen if things go in a negative direction. Um, I think physicians being acquainted with different religious traditions, what they teach, even within a religious tradition. I know within the Jewish community, it would be quite different to have a patient who um, is part of the Hasidic community than having a patient who is a reformed Jew and understanding that there's quite a bit of variation even within communities. And I think that's true in the Muslim community, in the Christian community, and in Eastern religions as well. So having some background um, and also being able to step back a little bit from their own misgivings about not being able to help and save this patient um, to remaining engaged with them. The complaint I hear most often from patients in hospice is that once it became clear that they weren't going to recover, they felt their doctor distancing themselves. And I think that they appreciate the caring even if it's not curing on behalf of the physician.
1: I know you've done a lot of work with leaders of other religions, broad numbers of individuals. Have you been able to have these types of detailed and difficult conversations with them about end of life issues and how much common view have you been able to achieve?
2: Um, so I've had more conversations um, with different religious traditions on beginning of life issues, um, but I think it's important to recognize that there are religious differences in what people believe about when life starts and when life ends, um, and the role of the physician, um, the role of prayer, and, um, And I don't know that the purpose of interfaith dialogue on these issues is to come to a common understanding so much as it is to understand difference and to allow an understanding of another religion to illuminate your own understanding of your religion. And I think that's where I found it most helpful, that is, talking to Christians, I've gotten a deeper understanding of Judaism because their concepts, their conceptual world is somewhat different. Um, Talking to Muslims about the Hadith, the tradition that parallels our oral law has given me more of an understanding of different ways one can understand law developing over the centuries. So I don't think it's so much to find a common answer but to learn about differences, to have those differences illuminate your own understanding and also to be respectful and especially in the United States where we have a tradition of separation of church and state to enable families to be guided by their own religious tradition and not to have that codified in any way in American law allowing it for in our example for assisted suicide is not requiring families to go down that road and that would be a violation of religious freedom because for some people that would be an offense against their religious beliefs
0: do you see many people who maybe were atheist or non-religious their entire life or maybe just non-practicing look to find uh, faith in god or some sense of spirituality in their final days
2: um i've seen people go through phases in their life um sometimes it's about an aging process less than it is confronting their death um i have heard from jews a little wistfulness at their christian friends who are sometimes so sure of a life in the world to come whereas judaism is more vague as to whether we're gonna be resurrected at the end of history or our souls return to the reservoir of being and perhaps are reissued into other bodies. Um, There's less certainty. Judaism has stressed behavior and allowed people, even the great rabbis to have different views. Um, But I do think people go through phases in which religion becomes more important to them. Young children are very interested In issues about life and death and what happens after we die and then we become busy with life and we have children and jobs and so forth. But that part of our life comes to an end and then sometimes we do return to wondering about some of these really big questions and I have seen that in. Empty nesters and baby boomers who maybe were not so interested or involved during their quote active years who come around to wondering once again about these questions.
0: My sister's a Lutheran pastor, and her first job out of seminary was to be a hospital chaplain. Um, She worked alongside people as they approached end of life and their families. She was also often there for families, too, who were at a hospital for an expected death, such as a child that passed away in a car accident. I have so much respect and, and admiration for her, having had a job that has to be filled with so much sadness and difficult conversations, um, can you share your thoughts on the role of the religious leader, such as pastor or rabbi in the hospital setting and its importance to both patients and their family members?
2: So, what's different about being a, a pastor or chaplain in a hospital setting um, is that often you are the chaplain to everybody who you meet or who comes in during a certain period of time. So when I was a chaplain at children's hospital in Cincinnati. I might have Jewish patients, but I also had a lot of Christian patients Um, because if I was the chaplain on the floor, I was there to help them as well. And I think, um, I would imagine your sisters had that experience as well. Um, You're there to meet them where they are, not to impose your beliefs on them, but to help them through what can be a really horrible experience as with a sudden death Um, as with the loss of someone who's very close and dear to a family. Um, I found sometimes as a hospital chaplain, I'd be interested in hearing your sister's experiences with this. You were also the chaplain to the staff. um, That oftentimes nurses have become very involved with the patient and the family, that physicians also could be sometimes just caught off guard by their strong feelings in a particular situation. So that you served the entire hospital community, and you were a presence who was patient, who was not doing something. Um, you know, a lot of younger patients, particularly, appreciated that I wasn't coming at them with needles or pokes or sticks or anything. They could sit in my lap while they had blood drawn. If you know that was what they wanted to do, um, you're there in a different kind of way. The um, Non-anxious presence that you can provide for people can sometimes help them to find a moment of calm in the midst of a very difficult time.
0: To follow up on this, uh, you know, people often come to religious leaders at the most difficult times in their lives, such as, you know, end of life or with the death of a child unexpectedly, as I mentioned. And I think about my sister or you in these hospital chaplain roles. Um how do you, and people in these situations, religious leaders, chaplains, et cetera, manage working with so much death, sadness, and grief as part of your job without it taking too much of a toll on your own mental health?
2: So that's a great question. And I know the clergy who went through the worst of COVID um, really suffered from this overwhelm of all the sad and difficult circumstances. People who are chaplains after 9-11 also had a very difficult time. So some of it is self-care. Um, some of it is having a group with whom you can share, who can sort of be chaplains to you. Um, it was very important when I was a chaplain at Children's Hospital that we all got together and talked about our experiences. But the other side of it is as opposed to being at a cocktail party, you are having very deep and meaningful conversations with people. You are meeting soul to soul. And there is something very rich about that experience, even if it's painful. And I think what sustains chaplains or what sustains people doing difficult work is the ability to be real in these kinds of ways and to walk with someone at a very difficult time, but also to take care of oneself. And I I don't want to minimize that. Do
1: you have any final thoughts for listeners on this crucial topic of end of life?
2: What I would say is that we have both emotional responses and we have responses that are informed by our religious tradition and medical knowledge. Um, When my father was very ill, there was an emotional response to what he was going through. And that helped me um, become perhaps better in my uh, pastoral role. But it was also important to understand what's going on with medicine today, to think about the implications of that for our traditional understandings, um, and at some level to step back a moment from that emotional response to consider what is beneficial for our society as a whole.
1: Rabbi Aaron, as always, you're scholarly, you're compassionate, you're caring, you're experienced, I know our listeners learned a tremendous amount today. Thank you so much for being on Fixing Healthcare. Thank you so
2: much for including me.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Corr. Have a great day.